Welcome to She Been Ready, the podcast. She Been Ready is a conversation, a declaration, and a clarification that Black women have always led. On this podcast, I, Dr. Wendy Williams, educator, psychologist, leader, and auntie, will be joined by Black women who lead and those who have been led well by them. So, you don't have to get ready when you stay ready, and you can trust in the leadership of a Black woman because she's been ready. Well, I have to say that I am continuing to be so excited about bringing to our audience the voices and perspectives, the leadership strategies of brilliant women. And that has continued this month and this second episode with Dr. Nadia Lopez. One of the things that we have to think about is where and how we enter a space of giving a damn about ourselves. In my conversation with Nadia, this notion of permission and or an invitation came up. So I wonder, what is the need, the necessity, even the difference between having permission to take care of yourself versus being provided an invitation to engage in that care? Permission versus the invitation. Nadia and I process this. What does it mean for someone to look at you, look in your eyes, peel back the layers of mask that you wear to, you know, perform your competence and see you, feel you? And how, when they say, hey, sis, how you doing? what our response suggests and what their persistence in that moment means, right? So someone may say that, right? Hey, 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 how you doing? How's it going? I know you're in this big role. You're doing all these things. How are you? How's your family? How are you doing, right? And the difference between whether or not we feel safe enough, protected enough to tell the truth, to be vulnerable, to lay a burden down, right, to metaphorically and even physically lay our head on someone else's shoulder, let them hold the weight of us and the weight of what we carry makes all the difference, makes all the difference in whether or not we're going to be here tomorrow, whether or not our health will be compromised, whether or not we will even have the mental, emotional, and physical stamina to be there. So the difference between permission and an invitation to care, or as Nadia says, for someone to who even you know looks at you and, and gives a damn. And so I wonder about the ways in which, one, we can give a damn about ourselves, but two, the ways that we can demonstrate a level of care and concern and attention to others because they need it and to to provide that to them would really be life-giving to them, would really be the lifeline. Because, you see, it's not only that I'm showing you that I care for you, that a stranger's looked out and said, hey, you know, you're deserving of care, you're deserving of attention, your well-being matters. It's that when they do do that, they are telling you that your well-being matters. And unfortunately, many of us need to hear that. 
many of us need to be told that because when we're in the context of our work, we put ourselves second, third, fourth, fifth. And this is not to be guilt mongering at all, but when's the last time you made sure that you got all the water you needed all day? Have you been skipping lunch? Do you let yourself or make yourself finish an email or a note or a meeting rather than running off to the restroom and just refreshing yourself and allowing yourself to be relieved? These are those small actions of self-care, those micro self-care spaces. But if we don't even do that for our, our physical beingness, what are we able to do for our emotional, spiritual self? So those are some things to think about. Deep for sure. And it's the kind of questions and the kind of perspectives that are awakened when I have an opportunity to connect with my dear sister, Dr. Nadia Lopez. And I just want to tell you a little bit about who she is. She's the founding principal of Mott Hall Bridges Academy. I met her when she, when this school was a, was a baby seat in her bonnet. You know, she was just thinking of what it should be, what it, what it, what she would call it, what it would what its focus would be, what its intentionality would be. She asked, and I said yes, very early in my career, too, to be on the advisory board. She wanted to have a council of people to come to for support. And because I'm a psychologist, and she had a very clear intention that the school have a social-emotional grounding and perspective, she wanted somebody at the table who understood children and understood mental health in such a way that we could create trauma-informed, reflective, and safe spaces for them and their families. It was a pleasure. The public learned of her school in a very broad way because of the program Humans of New York. Now, I don't know if you all remember that, but or even if it's still going on, but on Facebook, uh, there was a guy, again, I'm not remembering his name, but he had a program or a a series called Humans of New York. And essentially what he would do is just try to, you know, humanize New York. It's a big city. I loved living there. Um, But if you're not careful, you can you know, stereotype the experience and, you know, overshadow uh, the uniqueness, the nuance and the individuality of the human beings there uh, by just seeing it as New York City and not grounding down in that. So he would take a camera, microphone, I'm assuming, I think he was a journalist, his behavior sound like a journalist, and just would go out into the city and meet folks. And he met one of Nadia's students and asked him, you know, who's one of the most important people in your life? And he and the, and the young man said, you know, Ms. Lopez, the principal of my school. That changed things so much. One, that a child would say that. I, what I think interesting is that in our society, we didn't expect that a child would say that, um, that they would connect with school and their principal of all people as one of the most important people. So Nadia uh, was, you know, met, he, this, this uh, you know, person came to the school. I'm assuming they did tours and learned a little bit about the community that she's created there. Um, As an outcropping of that, she uh, accompanied her student to the White House, met Barack Obama, talked with uh, uh, Department of Education, you know, secretaries of the Department of Education, really tried to have an impact and, and push conversations forward that she knew were important for Mott Hill, I mean, excuse me, Mott Hall Bridges Academy in um, in, in, in East New York, but also relevant questions for schools all across this nation and world. She was honored at the Black Girls Rock um, uh, event right alongside the year that Michelle Obama was honored. So that was a huge deal. She's had a wonderful and amazing TED Talk. I encourage you all to uh, check into it. it. The link is in the show notes. Title of the talk was Why Open a School? 
to close a prison, right? So seeing the link between education um, as a pathway to opportunity rather than a school to prison pipeline. Most recently, she has launched a podcast. Really excited for her to join me in doing something new in this podcast conversational space. Uh, It's called Detention with Dr. Nadia Lopez, and she invites disruptors and rebels to join that conversation. I think what she knows and what we all know is that if you are going to be a disruptor of systems that are oppressive or challenging, you need company, you need community. She's also the author of a book, came out a few years back, but still really relevant, uh, Bridge to Brilliance, and she tells her story. And she also does engage in some individual and group coaching, as well as just makes herself available for, um, you know, more casual uh, conversations and engagements with with folks who are in the education field. She has a real deep uh, commitment to making change in this space, and it's evident and seen. This conversation with Dr. Nadia is about um, it's about what we do in that space when we have a big job, a big responsibility. The education of our young people is, in fact, that. And we also have a commitment to ourselves, a commitment to our health and to keeping ourselves here and well. And so this conversation with, with Dr. Lopez is entitled Health in Purpose, right? connecting this way in which we're called to, we have a calling um, on our lives and in our work, but we also have to take care of ourselves, right? And so how do we hold our health in alignment with our commitments to that purpose? So I am so excited to have you join us for this conversation on She Been Ready, the podcast. I am Dr. Wendy Williams. I'm your host, and I am so excited for you to be introduced to my dear friend and colleague, Dr. Nadia Lopez. Enjoy. Nadia, thank you so much for doing this with me. I'm so excited. And you are my first interview for this podcast, She Been Ready. Uh, so do you have any questions or thoughts about like what this podcast is or about or just anything like that? No. <laughs> okay. Um, perfect. Um, and so basically what I want to do is talk with women leaders who have been in leadership and really unpacking and dismantling that idea that women and particularly black women or women of color, other, you know, and other uh, racial and cultural backgrounds need additional preparation for being ready for leadership. Often they've been ready. And so we don't really always require that of men or white men in particular. So the first question that I have for you is how you knew that you had been ready. Like, how did you know? What was the work you were doing or engaging that made you realize that you needed to be at the helm, be in charge? What stage of your career were you you in? Um, How old were you, if you want to say? When I recognized or realized that I'd been ready, I don't don't necessarily think that um, for myself I hadn't prepared or knew the trajectory of my life would land me in leadership. Ultimately, what happened was I, I saw that, um, so when I, I realized that I had been ready was when I hit a level of frustration with the work that I was doing as a teacher. So I never expected to become a principal or um, 
enter the world of leadership at all. I, I was comfortable with just going to school, teaching the kids. Um, but I understood that in order to make decisions, you have to be at the helm. You have to be the boss. Hmm. And what I, I did not like was when I went to work, I saw how leadership um, was creating a culture that was demoralizing um, and targeted people, um, adults. And I, I couldn't understand how we were in a position of empowering children, yet we were the ones being attacked by the very individuals who were our superiors in terms of like, you know, our supervising, our rating officers. And so I've always just been that person who, if I see a problem, I have to find a solution. And the only thing that made sense in terms of the solution was eventually becoming my own, um, a, a leader running a school. And so I didn't know I would end up opening up a school. I just knew that the person who sets the tone, creates the cultures, holds people accountable is always the person who is the leader of the entire school being the principal. And so that kind of like started to make me think about pursuing that as a pathway and being able to create a space that was intentional about seeing children, seeing adults, treating them with respect, um, being compassionate and empathetic, but also um, embodying kindness, which, you, you know, sometimes in our schools you don't experience at all. And, and where were you in your career, or how old were you about that time when, when you realized that? Um, I will say this. It was early into my career. I started to see all the red flags and experience them first month of going into education. It, it didn't take that long. Okay. Um, yeah, it, it, it was like the first month of being in education. You know, at first you start, you, you see things, but it was every day. Um, and it was embedded in the culture. So it wasn't something you could escape. It wasn't like there was one person or, you know, um, one circumstance. It seemed to be every day there was just constantly this feeling of this is just not a safe space mentally or physically for people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think that that's a perfect ending to that question because where I want to go next is like really centering the focus of this conversation with you and why I purposely uh, chose you to have this particular conversation with because, you know, when one is in a leadership position, they are oftentimes responding to a calling or their sense of purpose. And mm -hmm. there is also deep necessity of balancing that drive with their health. And yeah. I know that you have made your personal testimony around your own health challenges in relation to your work public. Mm -hmm. so you're the principal of a school in New York, um, you know, respected and reputable school leader. And you decided to leave the role, and you made that very public. And I want you to talk with, with us about why you decided to do that. Why did you decide to not only have that experience, but tell everybody about it? I wanted to share my 
experience simply because I feel like we live in a world that makes us feel like we should be ashamed to say that uh, one, we've experienced abuse in the workplace or just in any relationship, right? I think the way we've been raised, especially as black women, is always to take on um, and not to complain, you know, to, to carry the weight. And to say that I am, I don't feel 100% to say that this has caused me harm, to use the words that this in any way has triggered me, makes me seem like either I'm weak or I'm the angry black woman or um, somehow I, I'm making things difficult. And I, I, I also felt like we're not given permission or acknowledgement of our own, like what we've gone through. And so I didn't see anyone anywhere talking about what they had gone through. Like being in education, what I, I, what was sad to me is that either behind closed doors in the places that we worked or at happy hour where you see all the educators convene, they could share their story. Everyone is so comfortable with, you know, talking about the ills of work to a point that it's all, it's like even sad to see that when people get together, they're always talking in a place of they're complaining about what their experiences, right? They talk about all the negative things that was happening, but when we're in public, we don't speak about it because we fear the ramifications. We fear being targeted. We fear that um, we could lose our job. And I just felt like, the reason why we feel that way is because we're, we're experiencing powerlessness, right? We're in a position of influencing children, generations. You know, we are in a, in, in a position of transforming communities and changing lives, yet for our own very lives, we're made to feel like we don't have a right to say how I'm being treated at my workplace is abusive. The fact that I walk in feeling anxious, depressed, experiencing panic attacks, that's not healthy, right? And even more so, I can't even say anything because if I say something, I may be then targeted and made an example of that further perpetuates the fears that everyone already experiences, like, that's not what I want to go through. So I just felt like I have to tell my story. Like, at this point, I'm going to tell my story. And if there are any lies to this story, then someone is going to have to refute it, right? Mm -hmm. And so when, once I started sharing the amount of messages that I had received, whether it was direct messages or emails from people say. I've felt the same way and didn't know that I could actually say something to someone. Thank you so much. And it wasn't like one or 10 or 15. There were like nearly a hundred or more people just reaching out, sharing their own stories that made me think like, this is, this is happening more often. Um, 
and it needs it needs to be at the forefront because we're not crazy and we're not alone in this. You said permission, um, and now I'm going to apologize for varying off of the questions, but I no problem. But you said permission, so it sounds like one just sharing it aloud and in public gives people permission. But I also know that you work with folks who are every day in the belly of the beast, particularly right now as you know mm-hmm. COVID and policy decisions and politicians' decisions are wrecking havoc on schools and school environments and all the things that are going on that have been happening in education for some time. That permission is not only just in the um, the nonverbal of you just sharing your story, but also my imagining is that there is a direct opportunity to give people permission when you hear their stories and um, provide space for them to be heard. And, and I'm wondering what that looks like when you have someone, a teacher, a leader, an educator who's in front of you, someone whom you're working with, who you coach, um, and you have to verbally hold space and give permission. What is, does that look differently to you? How does, how does that sit for you? I mean, that's an interesting question only because I can't necessarily say, I can't make a comparative of what makes it different. What I will say is that creating space and being intentional about it is something that is never done, right? And so, one, a couple of times that I've gone to visit principals in the past couple of months, as soon as I've entered the building and they've seen me, they pull me into their office and the tears start to come. And they take this deep breath and they're like, I'm so happy that you're here. I'm just going through so much right now. Even though I may have correspondence with them through text, we've done emails. Um, a couple of times we'll do you know, virtual calls as well. I think it's my presence and actually stepping into the place that causes the harm, that that, that is that place where they feel like they can't escape and share because they can't be their full self. You know, the, the thing that I've always said to leaders is that you can always be transparent, but you can't be vulnerable in this work when you're in front of your team. Because vulnerability allows you to cry, allows you to show the softer side, allows you to say like, you know, like it, you, you just show that right now I can't be all things to everyone. I need a breath, right? And so by being in their workspace, that empathy is felt because I'm here with you. I'm, I'm here to carry the load with you while I'm, I'm spending this time. And they are able to just, talk because, you know, leadership is so lonely. You know, you don't have, you can have an assistant principal, but there's still things you just can't share with, you know, depending on who your number two is, you don't always share everything. And then you have so many people who you're responsible for. So you feel like you're alone. You feel like um, you have to show up, you know, at your very best every single day. Um, and there's constantly the pressure that's coming from all directions. 
And so I, for me, I just think that because I know the experience that I had, I wish someone would have just came into my building and sat with me and said, you know, how's your heart and spirit today? And listened for the answer. Um, I wish that someone would have called me over the phone to say, how did you take care of yourself this morning or this afternoon? Did you get to eat? Did you get to journal? Did you step away from your desk? Um, I wish someone would have just said to me, doesn't matter the time of day, send me a text and let me know if you need absolutely anything. No one gave me that type of permission, right? They didn't give me access. They didn't provide me with the lifeline. And because I'm the leader, I don't know that I should ask for it, demand it, or expect it. Because it always is the leader supposed to be the one who, when you get to this level in your career, you're supposed to have all the answers. And so because I recognize that, I make it possible for them to know that you don't have to have it all together. You can ask for the help. And even if you don't ask for the help, I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give you resources and I'm going to, I'm going to make the connections that you need. I'm going to try to build and help you create a community so that you don't feel like you're alone in this work. You know, I'm hearing you and I just, you know, when I heard you say permission before, I thought it was you saying permission to just share your truth, but I hear you saying something differently right now. I actually hear that you didn't receive an invitation of care. And right. that the type of permission that you're saying, I am offering you this space. I am offering you someone who gives a damn and who can yeah. see you. Which is more than yeah. just telling a story. It's actually helping you do something with it. Absolutely. Because, you know, the, the idea of, you know, we, you can look at it from a surface level. Yes, permission is the audacity to even say, yeah. and tell what's happening. But on the other side of it, after you've told what's happened, you're still feeling alone. You still don't have a connection to someone who's going to take this journey with you or at least guide you through it. And that's the most important part of it. So what is it that you think, one of, so one of the things I hear very loudly for you in this, this, this podcast, this conversations, all the ones that we're going to have are about Black women in leadership. So there are mm -hmm. obviously other folks can extrapolate lessons. Um, but being the canaries in the coal mine that we are, um, our, our experience is unique because of where we're situated in this society. And so I'm thinking about strong black women when you're talking right now. So the question that I want to ask is, you know, what do you think that women and black people and black women specifically uh, need to understand about their self-worth in relation to their role as a leader? And I can't help but want to also say what do they need to do with the strong black woman thing as they're doing that, as they're in that space with that work? Hmm. I have to be 100% honest because I'm on the other side of it now. Yeah. I want, I want black folks to understand that you are you are the asset. And when I say that, it's because somewhere along the line, we believe that when we get one leadership position, there's only one out there for us. And so we 
unfortunately settle and we accept being treated less than what we're worth, our value, simply because we believe that there's there's nothing else that we can ever be um, offered in terms of a leadership position or that we can't create something for ourselves. You know, it's, it's the, it's the, I made it syndrome. Okay. So I, I finally made it. And the pressure, we, we succumb to the pressure of what other people think because sometimes people are very limited in what they, you know, what, what is success. So the natural projection or progression for someone who's in education, you start off as a teacher, or you could start off as a teacher's assistant or paraprofessional, you end up in teaching, and then you go into the principalship, right? And so for some people, the principalship is the highest title. And then there's some people who say the, the highest title is superintendency, right? And so once you get those titles, it's like, well, what else would you do? And there's like, there's a whole world that exists beyond these titles, beyond a school building. The problem is, is that we don't network outside of our very immediate community to know that there's anything else. We're not offered anything else. So we only believe that where we can go is what is in front of us, which is the principalship. And now that, like, I always knew I didn't want to be a superintendent, but I also knew that at some point I didn't always want to be a principal for the rest of my life. Having to resign from my position forced me to recognize that, oh, my experience would be beneficial to someone else who's sitting in the position right now and providing them with the tools and resources they need so that they are able to be sustainable in their positions. They're able to understand the importance of prioritizing themselves. So for me, coaching just seemed like the natural progression. Consulting with districts or various organizations about how they can effectively support schools and support leaders has also been, you know, based off of my experience. So now I get to call the shots. I get to say what hours I want to work. I get to say how much I want to charge. I get to be a full human being where I don't feel like I'm walking into a place that's going to harm me in any way. I get to choose who I engage with. Right. And so we have to learn and, and learn what's out there. So we need our, we need to get coaching. We need to get mentors. We need to step outside of our own comfortable boxes. Um, because if we don't, what ends up happening is that we we will believe the only thing that is of value is the title. We then place our identity in the very thing that is this title. And that's why I've always said, folks, I'm an educator. Don't put me in the box of being a principal. Don't put me in the box of being, you know, anything else. I'm an educator. So that means I can go into any industry and still provide a service of education. I can work for myself and still provide a service of education. Right? So I want folks to just to hear me on that. Your yeah. worth is not the title. You are the asset. You have to literally unpack everything that you've done. Unpack every role and responsibility that you had. Ask other people what you've done, right? You don't even know how many roles you play in this one position that you have. And if you did that, you would see in another um, company or entity, 
They have six people who do one thing that, you know, do the one role that you do. They have six individuals, right? And if you had to look at those six individuals and six different salaries, that's, that's your worth and beyond. And when you were born into this world, you didn't, nothing on your birth certificate said occupation for the rest of your life. That's not what you were given. What's on your birth certificate, maybe your race, maybe your gender, maybe your name, and all of those things can change. Not your race, your gender can change, your name can change. So why do you feel like you have to be tied to this one job for the rest of your life? Well, you know, for black people, particularly in U.S. context and across the Caribbean as well, there are these thoughts and, and ways to think that we need to unpack and, and disconnect labor yep. from, from personhood, right? So that might, I think, be a place where the work may be more deep, particularly when you're doing some of that coaching work and really helping people to uncouple themselves from a sense of where they labor and what work they do versus who they are and what, what purpose and intention look like in their life. Let me, let me lean into that. Part of the unpacking has to also deal with how we were raised, and I'm very clear on that. How we identify ourselves and how we value our worth has also come from the expectations of our parents. And so I get that. You know, having two parents who are not from this country, my mother was all about get those good benefits and stay at the job until the day you retire. And so I had to disrupt her, her norm, that that's not what you sent me to college for, <laughs> you know, that's not what an education was for. It was for me to have options and to engage in exploration of opportunities. Um, so I get it. And when we've never been taught that, we've never been taught to be fearless and to choose what's in our best interest as opposed to be imposed upon. We've been taught to allow people to impose onto us what they feel is best as opposed to being allowed to choose. This is a shift in mindset. And so it, it sometimes takes courage. It takes audacity. It also takes you to be around different people because when you're around different people and you see how they move, you start to ask yourself, well, how, how is it possible that they can do those things? I think ultimately what happened and what happened for me was it nearly cost me my life to realize that I no longer have to be tied to this one entity and I can no longer subscribe to what everybody else feels is in the best interest of me because when I was in the hospital, all of the people who had something to say was not in the hospital with me, right? Mm-hmm. Having to go through, um, you know, a diagnosis and then treatment and then go into the hospital every week for multiple reasons, whether it's the doctors, whether it's testing, all of these things forced me to realize, like, this, I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy. But then also, why am, I, why am I going through this? You know, and then I started looking around, and when I, when I would talk to people, they were also going through it. And I was thinking to myself, like, but why is this our norm? Like, why do we have to prove our dedication to the work requires us to nearly die for it. No, this is wrong. There's something wrong with all of this. Um, and so self-preservation is ultimately my, my biggest um, 
the platform that I'm working on right now, the, the push and the advocacy is around folks knowing that you truly have to take care of yourself because there's so much more for you to live for. <laughs> so you have left the day-to-day of work of being in a school building. Um, yes. And has expanded the platform. It's wonderful to watch and follow you as dear friends at the Lopez Effect, everywhere you can be online. And, you know, you're now a champion for mm-hmm. equity and supportive teachers and leaders. Some of it you've already talked about because it's so integral into who you are. You talk about it just so naturally. And I... You know, one of the things that I think is interesting for folks who've been ready, and sometimes that does mean leaving, severing relationships mm-hmm. and organizations or institutions. And I, I find it fascinating the way that you've left, but you just positioned yourself differently within the context and or outside the context of that, of that space and are leaving there. And I would love for you to share with us about what it means to lead from the outside and what that looks like for you, for you. Uh, what are the advantages of doing so? You know, what, what are you able to do that you couldn't do when you were in there? And what are some of the limitations that in? I get excited to know that I do not have to walk into a school um, and be responsible for every aspect of it. Um, You know, walking in now with the focus of how can I help a leader be their best self without them feeling like they're continuously having to compromise themselves. Um, And and with the goal that at the end of the session that I have with them, I've deposited in some way to their personal and professional sustainability. So what's interesting in in the past couple of um, visits that I've had is how exhausted I've been once I've left the school, right? And I think to myself, how did I do this every single day, year after year? You know, you have to have mental toughness to be in a school because there's constantly a need. Adults having a need, a child having a need, um, a request from, you know, uh, the whether it's the superintendent or, you know, a visit from someone. Like the amount of transactions that are happening at any given moment simultaneously. I don't think people understand. You can literally be handling three or four things minimally at the same time and have to give it all your full attention because literally some of them can be life or death, right? Like you literally are dealing with people's lives every single day. Um, so that's exhausting. The amount of meetings that principals have back to back to back to back to back. The fact that they don't pencil in lunch. You know, I don't think people even understand that teachers have a lunch period and then they have prep periods. And this day and age, 
unfortunately, a lot of teachers aren't getting their prep because of the way scheduling is happening, but you still have your lunch in some way, shape, or form. And if you don't have your lunch, you're going to leave, let's say, by 2.30, 3 o'clock. The principal, one, the ones who are really dedicated to the work, are in the building until after 5, 6 o'clock, and they go days, you know, they go the entire day without eating anything, not even a snack. You know, they may drink water, but the majority of the time they're drinking coffee. So just the wear and tear on your body and the demands on you mentally to have to be present and to make decisions, you know, you go through decision fatigue, that impacts your body. You're not getting enough sleep at night, that impacts your body. Um, having to walk in and out of rooms, the energy that you're expending and the energy that you're absorbing, that impacts your body. There's so many elements that we don't talk about that stresses your cells, that stresses your organs. You know, and, and, and that's why stress appears in different ways in our bodies. It's not just about hypertension and cholesterol. There are other things that manifest that we don't engage in conversations about because a lot of times the things that we experience, people don't even connect it to stress. Unless, you're having, unless you have a really good relationship with your doctor and you start to unpack what is the commonality of why this is happening, Sometimes they don't even recognize that this is a stress-related induced hmm. disorder that you have, right? And so that aspect of it, you know, in in going into the schools, I've I've just in the day I've experienced the exhaustion and needed like two or three days just to recover. Um, but being able to recognize that I do then go into the school and I, first thing I ask the principal is, so how have you set up your morning? You know, what, do you, what did you eat today? Let's stop. <laughs> if you're meeting with me, let's stop. Have, your, have something to eat, have something to drink. Um, we go into classrooms and we have a different lens. I find that when I meet and, and when I go into classrooms and do observations with the school leaders, there's, they beat themselves up so much. They want to tell me all the bad things that's happening before I go into the classroom and tell me all the negative. And I'm like, okay, so I want to lean in and say, you're doing a great job, given the circumstances <laughs> you're dealing with, right? Let's just take a pause. Let's start with that. Let me show you and tell you some of the things that I saw just walking in the hallway. Let me tell you some of the things that I heard from the children or the adults themselves. Now, are there areas that you could work on? Absolutely. Let's talk about those things. But they're like, and this isn't happening, and that isn't happening, and we need to do this, and we need to do that, because they're in such a place of being evaluated so much that they're trying to, they're on the defensive. I need to tell you what, what, what and why it is the way it is before you even start to tell me what I should do. And I'm like, that, that's not... That's not why I'm here. I'm here as your thought partner. And I also, because of the lens that I have, I've now helped them shape the narrative so that they don't have to start conversations off like that. So what you're going to tell, like if you're in a position of your rating officer, which is a superintendent or an evaluator comes in, you're going to start from the place of, so when we started this school year, these were the challenges. 
this is what I needed. These were some of the gaps. Since the beginning of the school year, these are the areas that we're working on. Here's the goal. And here's where we've landed thus far and things I'm working on. Now you're changing how someone interprets your space. Because you need to say, I didn't have it all together. I didn't have all the resources that I needed. I am trying my very best based off of where I am here, the goals that I've established. Here's the steps that we are taking. And I am open to suggestions or feedback as to how I can make this better. Right? That's how it needs to be laid out. Because the minute you start to say all the negative, that's all someone needs to say, okay, yeah, I didn't see that. I didn't see this. I didn't see that. Without understanding the complexities of what you've had to deal with every single day. Then you're putting more stress on yourself and your team based off of this one snapshot of what you feel like is the worst thing in the world. Everybody's going through it in every single school. You're not the only one. So shape your narrative. So I, and that's something that I didn't necessarily have um, when I was a principal. I was always on the defensive. I was always trying to, like, explain because there were so many expectations. And now I'm like, yeah, at the end of the day, if you want this job, you can have it. You want to do this job? Because that's why you're not coming in here. You only come here once, <laughs> once a year and tell me all the things. You don't want this job? So, you know, I take that from the outside really helps folks. You coming in from the outside, and, and I feel like that is that way that you're leading because you're really, you're you're taking the, the, the pressure valve off a little bit and letting some of the steam out for them from someone that I know they respect because everyone has seen your work and your journey. So if you are saying that you're doing a great job, if you're saying, did you eat today, you know, if you're saying that, then their love for their children in the school is not diminished by the things they haven't been able to do yet. Exactly. Because the school is still going to be there. And I also approach it from the, from the stance of how I led my own team. I knew what I didn't receive um, from superintendents who led my district. But I never wanted the pressure that I felt from them to be to impact the way I led my team. I led from a place of compassion and empathy. So my team, they, you know, oftentimes would start from, you know, I didn't get to do, I didn't get to do, I didn't get, and I was like, I didn't, I didn't even ask you a question yet. Like, I didn't even, we didn't even get there. I would start off with, how are you today? Is everything okay? You want me to get you some water? You know, like, let's start off with that, right? And then have the conversation about, so let's talk about what you saw. Let's, let's talk about what happened in the classroom. And then, if, you know, if I had questions, again, I was guiding them through the process and saying, so I have some questions about, you know, this particular scholar and their checking of understanding, you know, this is, this is what I saw. And then here's the scholar's notebook. And, you know, I would give, I would provide evidence, but then I would say, okay, so our plan of action for your, for the next visit or for just your next lesson, these are the things you need to work on. And then my next time going in the classroom is not for evaluated purposes, it's for support. Right. So the way I, was as a leader to my teachers is the way I'm a coach to the leaders who are now having to lead teachers. 
right? Come from a place of compassion and empathy. Because if you don't do that, then you start to put the pressure on your team. And they're, they're at a place that they're broken. And so we can't be the ones to add to that. Like, we, we also are broken as leaders. And that's something we have to acknowledge. And I don't say that lightly. That we are broken as well as leaders. And it's not even as much as just the work, right? That's something that I had to learn through therapy. Right, the vicarious trauma that we experience in our workspaces can also trigger traumas that we didn't know went unresolved in our own personal lives, and then we're expected to show up and not acknowledge the, our pain. And sometimes our very work, like we don't recognize that sometimes we use work as a place of trying to work through pain but it's causing us more harm and we can't, and it, it, and it doesn't fix anything. <laughs> it doesn't fix anything. We are trying to have corrective experiences for what's broken in our heart and how we live today, whether that's at work or romantic relationships. Usually we think of it in that yeah. But it also happens in the, in the place where we have the most involved relationship, which is our work every day. Absolutely. So we're trying to fix everybody. And that's why we keep taking on things, right? We see we see children. We know what it's like as a child to experience harm, abuses, and all the things. And so we want to protect them. We want to do all the things for them. We know what it's like to be an adult and to be in a household that may not be filled with love or having the expectations of raising children and being caregivers and everything. And so we want to make sure that those adults are getting everything that they need, right? We, and, and no one act, actually allows us to pause. And that's why, I, you know, when I started off with the permission, that's why I give people the permission to let go, right? Full circle. And so, you know, I don't take anything away from what I've been through. I would never, I don't feel any leader should ever have to go through what I've been through <laughs> at all to have this aha moment. But it allows me to have a deeper connection to the folks who are in schools, especially when it comes to black women. I don't think that um, there's enough care and regard for what we actually sacrifice. And we don't we don't go in full detail about what what we're going through at all. What are black women sacrificing for their children? So they what we <laughs> what we sacrifice is our own personal well being. Right? We we sacrifice by not saying no and by always showing up, by not creating boundaries, we allow people to impose on our time. We allow people to impose um, on decisions. Like we allow folks and their opinions to, to sway us, even though we know innately this isn't the best thing for me. 
because we want to be liked. We want more opportunity. We know what it's like to be um, treated second, third, fourth, fifth. We know what it's like to have to be pinned against each other and be competitive when, you know, it's, it's, it's so unfair. You know, we don't talk about how there are the cliques that exist. We don't talk about the various ways in which all um, colorism, sexism, uh, the way we look, our weight, all of these things factor into who we are it, and, and, and it eats at our own personal self-esteem. There's so many things that happen and yet, we, like, leadership is in and of itself is not easy, but the complexities of who we are and how society has treated us put so much more pressure and so there is no manual. We don't have a manual that helps us to navigate. Um, we don't have the girls club that helps give, you know, give a, us a leg up. Those organizations are centered in whiteness in terms of it provides more access for them. You know, we don't we don't have we don't have nannies who's gonna take care of our kids so that we can go out and have a drink or we can go to you know, we don't have any of those things. We we are forced to figure everything out. From sunup to sundown, our whole schedule is filled with things all day. And then we feel guilty if we then turn around and say, I'm gonna take two hours for myself. I'm gonna take a day off. If you take a day off, you start to feel guilty. Oh God, what's how are the people going to feel, what's going to happen, the, the building's going to burn down without me in it, like all, all of these things, which is a fallacy. We create that in our minds because people have literally said it can't function without you. But guess who was told that? Our parents, our mamas was told that, our grandmama was told that, great, 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 grandmama was told that. All right. I want to be mindful of our, our time, and I do have two questions for you before I let you go. Sure. Uh, is that okay? Oh, yes, because I am the first guest. <laughs> You're not the last, and this won't be the last time, I hope. Yes, no. Um, so one important element of, this, of the conversations that we're having on this podcast is to think about the black women who are early in career, in graduate school even, who are listening, who are aspiring to leadership, who really want those opportunities. So if you were to speak to your younger self or imagine the mentors that you support, what advice or words of wisdom would you impart as they balance their health and their leadership ambitions? Mm. I think it's important to start with your own personal non-negotiables and personal expectations from the work that you're going to do. You know, um, with a lot of leaders that I coach and, like, aspiring individuals who are either looking to go into leadership or people looking to transition into new positions, the first thing I ask is for them to make a list of all of the things that they want from a position, that they need in order to thrive, not to survive, but to thrive and feel successful. Um, and by doing so, when you are looking at the position, 
are you receiving these things? And if it's not, if it's not apparent, then being in a position of asking, how can you get these things? Who would be able to provide that? You know, is there any negotiation around it? And the reason why I, I, I state starting with that is because when we, we look for a job, we just look for, I need, I need a job and I need the benefits and I need the pay. But then we get into the very thing that we wanted and we realize that it doesn't provide us with the mental, physical, or emotional wellness that we deserve and need. Um, so you start with that um, because if you're saying to yourself, I need a, a, a job that, you know, for me, reasonable hours, I'm just saying as an example would be I end my day by five no later than six or I have to end my day by 4.30 because I want to be home and readily available for my family to do X, Y, and Z. It's important for you to say, is that possible in this job? And ask other people who are within that job or that organization, is this possible at this particular place? If it's not, what are you willing to negotiate in order for you not to fully sacrifice the time that you need with your family, right? In terms of boundaries, again, it comes down to you laying out what it is you need for yourself and saying no and being okay with it, right? When we say no, then we come with a myriad of rationale as to why we can't because we don't want other people to feel bad about our decision. When in reality, it's a matter of, I'm not able to do that at this time. Maybe we could reschedule or that's not something that is aligned to what you know I'm choosing to do as I move forward. Whichever way you want to set the context, you have to be able to put that out there because if you don't, people will then think that it's okay to keep imposing upon you. And if you recognize that there are people who are like that, like there are folks that you're like, wow, they said no, <laughs> right? <laughs> and didn't even blink an eye. You're like, oh, okay, so you're not going to even explain why. They don't have to. They they don't have to, right? It is. You know, you can actually sometimes, yeah. Sometimes it's easy to just ask a person, you know, I love how you said no. Talk, talk me through, like, how you do that. <laughs> and listen to the person's response. Like, yeah, I'm not doing that. That's, I don't have the time or energy, and I can't. Right? And then you'll realize, like, oh. And guess what? After that person says no to you, you don't go back and ask them again. You realize, like, when they say no, it's no. And I have to think about the way I'm going to approach them. Right. Um. So do that for yourself and, and give yourself grace. Give yourself grace in knowing that the way you have been created, what God has made is an exceptional human being. What you have learned and all the skills you have developed have given you the talent to be in a position that you're in. So if you can be here, you can be everywhere that you want to be, that you can conceive. And maybe every door is not going to open for you, and that's fine. But because you're such an asset, you don't have to, you, you shouldn't be going everywhere anyway. You should be just a selective. So um, know your self-worth and know 
I always say know whose you are and know who you are. And that will always help guide you. Okay. Jam, 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 drop in. So the last uh, question is just I want people to uh, who, who listen and who are inspired by you, which I imagine there will be many, to know what you're up to, what you're doing, what your work is, what your vision is, where can they find you, how are you manifesting your call to lead in this moment right now? I am still doing the work of coaching. Um, so right now I do group coaching and individual coaching, and that's all through the Lopez Effect, as well as provide consulting um, to organizations as so it relates to leadership. So, yes, it's www.thelopezeffect.com, and they can find me on all the social media platforms, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, um, at The Lopez Effect. Um, and, yeah, we could always connect. They can find updates about what I'm doing and, um, you know, ways in which I'm checking folks because I'm always checking somebody on something. <laughs> you can attest to that. Um, but, you know, <laughs> I'm a disruptor. What else can I say? I'm a disruptor. And, uh, yeah, so that's what's Nadia, next for me. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to chat with you and to have, well, we, you know, get to have these between us, but I'm really grateful to share this conversation with many more people because I do think people need to hear it. It's a pack of permission, if you will. Of course. <laughs> And I'm, I just have to say this. I'm so excited and um, proud of you in stepping into this new endeavor. Um, you know, you have done tremendous work centering black women um, through your research and your own advocacy and offering us a multitude of platforms to have conversations that are courageous and aren't often had. Um, and I just think that this is just another way of reaching more people and giving them the permission, as you stated. Um, and so kudos to you, um, because this is adding on to your plate again. This is adding on to your plate, so you have to make sure of your own self-preservation. Um, and I'm sure that you have put together a team that's supporting you, but, you know, we have to give praise to those who are continuing to amplify our voices and as much as we have shown that black women are striving there's still a lot of work that has to be done um but we have to do it collectively so as my sister as my friend i think and i love you very much thank you thank you thank you